Good morning and welcome all of you at Calvary Quakertown and for any of you that may be joining us online, it's great to have you with us today. And again, if you happen to not be here on a Sunday morning or you want to check out what happened in the service again because you may have fallen asleep or forgotten, you can go to the app and you can check that out. I actually watched the Calvary service live last week from my hotel room in Chicago. And I noticed that Carlos, being Carlos, said, Charles, why don't you bring me back a souvenir? So I did bring him back a souvenir. I brought him a mug from Starbucks, slightly used. I put it in my briefcase, got smashed a little bit. So Carlos, you can pick this up sometime during the week in my office. Uh, You have your souvenir from Chicago. Well, we're in a series that we're calling For Everyone. And we're looking at the New Testament letter to the Romans that the Apostle Paul drafted by way of introduction. He introduces himself and he introduces his message, the gospel, to all of the readers there. And some of what we can do as we read through the letter, we can get to know Paul a little better through that introduction. And we can also get to know his message better, which is also our message as we work our way through the letter. Well, this morning we're going to come to chapter 4, and chapter 4 is all about illustrating what he's talked about in the first three chapters. And what's he been talking about? He's been leading as a crescendo to justification. Now, that may sound like a really big, hard word. We use that word today when someone justifies. They're trying to help you see things from a different perspective. You're convinced of A, but through the process of justification, they want you to see it from the perspective of B. That's what Paul's doing. As you look at life, you see it from perspective A, but let's re-look at it from perspective B. And so through that process of perspectival change, Paul's helping us see things differently. So this morning, we're going to look at justification. If you look that up in the dictionary, you'll see something similar to what I just said. Well, how does Paul do that, and why does he do this illustration thing? Well, it works like this. Everything changes with Jesus, but some things never change. Everything changes with Jesus, but some things never change. And so what Paul's doing in the letter to Romans is he's saying, Jesus changes everything, but some things never change. Let me explain it this way. We uh, have the story that we've talked about at different times. And the story takes the Bible and kind of looks at it in six different acts. So up on the screen, you see the story. Here's the Bible in six big acts. Six big acts. God creates. That's the beginning part. God gets everything going. But then God is rejected. Soon after creation, the human beings that God created to kind of be the center of his plan, they turn their backs and reject what God wants. And they say, well, we've got a better idea. We'll do it our way. They reject God. But then God promises that he's not content to let the consequences of their rebellion continue, but he will bring about his original intention. How does he do that? He does that by... uh, actually stepping on to the planet he made. Jesus is God himself coming to earth. God appears in that act. And soon we're going to celebrate that appearance at Christmas. And then the mission begins that we look at and culminates on Easter morning. The fifth act is then God sends. And God says, all of you people that believe the message and are trusting that message, you need to now go and spread that message, live the message, experience it, and then extend it. 
And then we're also told that the final act is God will restore according to his original intention. So there's the Bible in six acts. Now here's what you need to remember. Paul is writing the book of Romans from the beginning of act five. We live in act five. So Paul's writing Romans to say, here we are. God has appeared. I'm writing, Jesus has already been here. He's accomplished the gospel. And now the restoration's on the way. But the illustrations he uses in Romans 4 come from Act 3. He's going to talk about Abraham and David, two of the big names, maybe the two biggest names from Act 3. Paul uses as illustrations Jesus then completes the mission, Act 4. Paul then writes, and we live in Act 5. So that's how the illustrations work. Well, if you have your Bibles or your phone, your iPad, whatever, uh, let's, you can follow along as I read the beginning of, of uh, Romans 4, and we look at these two illustrations. You'll see both of them named. Paul writes, What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, discovered in this matter? If, in fact, Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. What does Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now, to the one who works, wages are not credited as a gift, but as an obligation. However, to the one who does not work, but trusts God who justifies the ungodly, their faith is credited as righteousness. David says the same things when he speaks of the blessedness of the one to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord will never count against them. We uh, can stop there. So two illustrations from Act 3 as Paul writes from Act 5. Now two words, categories, things you need to keep in mind righteousness and justification righteousness you can think of as a resume righteousness is our collection of commendations human beings are all about drafting our resume and we don't want to put condemnations on the resume we want everything on the resume that makes us look good right we hide all the problems we highlight all of the commendations the problem is god knows our actual resume and every one of us in this room has some condemnations on the resume, and we've got a few commendations on the resume. But the condemnations are a problem, and the commendations are not nearly enough. That's the problem. Righteousness has to do with God's standard concerning the resume. The problem is none of us meet the standard. We all fall, fall far short of the righteousness standard. Our resumes are inadequate. We're disqualified. If your righteousness resume grants you access, our resumes keep us out. That's the point. Justification is God looking at Jesus' resume in our behalf and our resume in his behalf. So the picture that we created a couple weeks ago and Carlos referred to, the whole process is the good news of the gospel is Jesus collects all of the resumes of those that know their resumes are filled with condemnations and not adequate commendations. Jesus takes them all. 
He then pays the price that our poor resumes have bring, that bring about, and he gives us his resume with no condemnation and lots and lots of commendation. You can make the resume swap. And when the swap is complete, God justifies us. God pronounces they are in the right. So rather than condemnation, which is the opposite of justification, rather than God condemning because of our inadequate resume, God justifies because we're holding Jesus' resume. Kind of got the picture? That's the idea that Paul's been talking about for three chapters. Now in chapter four, he illustrates it. Illustration number one is Abraham. So here's what uh, Paul writes. Well, what shall we say then about Abraham, our forefather according to the flesh? What did he discover in this whole justification resume kind of deal? If in fact Abraham was justified by works, so if Abraham was justified by his resume, then he had something to boast about. Not before God, though. What does Scripture say, though? God, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now, to the one who works, wages are not credited as a gift, but an obligation. However, to the one who does not work, but trusts God who justifies the ungodly, their faith is credited as righteousness. So the first illustration is this guy named Abraham. Well, what do we know about Abraham? Well, let me give you kind of a thumbnail sketch. As you're reading in the book of Genesis, there are a bunch of chapters that relate to Abraham. Abraham was the father of the Jewish nation. So Abraham's kind of like the first Jew. And Abraham is looked to as the father of faith, not just by Jews, but by Christians and Muslims as well. So three of the world's great religions look back to Abraham as the founder and father of this whole faith deal. Well, what makes Abraham the father of faith? Well, here's a story. Abraham is not a God follower. Abraham is not a God lover. You know, Abraham lives in a pagan society where idols are worshipped. And all of a sudden, God says to him, Hey, Abraham, I want you to leave your hometown, your network of relatives, your business acquaintances. I want you to leave and go to a destination that I'll tell you about along the way. Now, I'm not sure how many of you would sign up for that duty. Like, Leave home, all your contacts, all that's familiar, and go to a place, and I'll show you along the way where you, sh where, where you should go. Amazingly, Abraham takes his wife Sarah, and they go. They go. Well, eventually God leads them to the promised land, and in the promised land, God gives Abraham a fourfold promise. That promise or promises in the Old Testament are called covenants. So here's the fourfold promise that God gives to Abraham. Abraham, I'm going to make your name great. When people say the name Abraham, everybody's going to say, wow, Abraham. Well, that's true, isn't it? I already told you, Jews and Christians and Muslims look to Abraham as the father of faith. Say, oh, yeah, Abraham, his name is great. Secondly, God says, I'm going to make you into a great nation. Great nation. Thirdly, I'm going to make you a great blessing. In fact, the whole world is going to be instructed on how I deal with people by how I deal with you and your descendants. 
And so they're going to learn about grace and love and mercy and compassion. They're going to learn about accountability and encouragement. As the world watches my relationship with you, Abraham, they're going to learn about me. And if they follow, just like the Jew, they will be blessed. Right? So you're going to be a great blessing. Oh, and fourthly, Abraham, the whole world is going to be blessed through you. Wow. The whole world is going to be blessed through Abraham. Hmm. Now, something uh, you need to know in this whole story, when Abraham was back in his home country and, you know, kind of relaxing, just kind of vegging out, um, and God said, Abraham, I want you to leave home, he was 75 years old. His wife, Sarah, was 65. When most people are thinking of moving into a retirement community, God shows up and says, Abraham, you're moving. Great. Lutheran home. Right? No, no, no. You're not, you're not going to retirement community. You're going to a place I'll show you along the way. And at 75 years old and 65 years old, they set out on this journey. Great name, great nation, great blessing, great mission. What does Abraham need to see the fulfillment of those four promises? He needs descendants. He needs kids. The problem is, he has none. God shows up and Abraham's 75, Sarah's 65, and God says, I'm going to make your name great. You're going to be a great nation. All the world will be blessed through you. Abraham, that's what... Abraham needs kids. He has none. He's 75. Sarah's 65. It's not happening. Um, I don't know about you, but could you imagine Abraham being, you know, the nation of Abraham being announced at the Olympics? And now the nation of Abraham, he and Sarah, just the two of them come out with their walkers right here they are at the Olympic show. What, what kind of a great nation is that? A great nation, a great name, great blessing, great. What? Well, what does it say in Romans 4, which is quoted from Genesis 15? Abraham believed God. And it was credited to him as righteousness. As crazy as that may sound, Abraham believed that God could do that. Maybe Abraham thought like this. Well, wait a minute. So if God created all this stuff that's here, and God kind of keeps it all going, can keep track of all these people and all the animals and stuff, you know what? If he invented life, he can certainly bring life out of death to Sarah and me. Maybe put it together like that. We don't know. But when God said... You're going to be a great nation. You'll have a great name. You'll be a great blessing, great mission. Abraham believed God, and God credited it to him, counted it to him as righteousness. Now, rewind the tape a little bit to what I said earlier. What was on Abraham's resume? A lot of condemnations and few commendations. Um, a few chapters before that Genesis 15 thing, in order to spare his own life, and probably he thought he could make some money out of it, he tells the king that Sarah is his sister rather than his wife. Uh, men, you probably don't want to do that with your I'm just saying, you probably don't want to do you, that. That doesn't get you in well with your spouse to lie like that. Um, yeah, there are condemnation, a whole bunch of other ones, but that's one big condemnation on his resume. So if Abraham's counting on his own resume to have a righteousness back, he doesn't have it. He's far short. He's got condemnations on his resume and not nearly enough commendations. His resume 
puts them in a difficult predicament. There's no access based on the resume. What does God do? God says, Abraham, you don't have any righteousness, but you trust me. You somehow believe that I will keep my promises and you trust that I will keep my promises and God credits his faith as righteousness. Abraham needs righteousness to get access. He doesn't have righteousness, but he does trust God. And God says, I know you don't have righteousness in that, and that is what you need, but you trust me to fulfill my promises. I will credit your faith as righteousness. Not because he earned it. That's the whole point of Romans 4, right? Paul says, Abraham didn't earn this thing. In fact, what he earned is condemnation, but he believed God. And because he believed God, he gets a different resume that's full of commendation. Wow, that kind of sounds like what Paul's been talking about in Romans 3, right? That's why he uses Abraham as an illustration, right? He's not stupid. He knows what he's doing. Here's the second illustration, David. Now, we all know the name David, right? David has this illustrious career in the Old Testament. David's a shepherd that becomes king. David is a poet that writes like half the book of Psalms or more. David is a musician that can even quiet psychotic souls. Um, I mean, David is a statesman. David is a king that leads Israel into the golden age of her existence. I mean, if anybody knew how to be a leader and had a great resume, it was David. Oh, yeah, there are a couple of blemishes on that record, by the way. Uh, his resume isn't flawless. In fact, let me just mention a couple things. Uh, in fact, David has bigger condemnations that I think most of you have. David uh, committed adultery with, with, like, his best friend's wife, and then he has his best friend murdered to cover up that sin. Hmm. I don't know about you, that's kind of a blotch on his resume, don't you think? Like I'm just saying, a little bit of a black mark there, just a smudge. David has a problem. David has a sin problem. David has a condemnation problem. He pulls out his resume, and he does have a bunch of cool stuff there. You know, he fed sheep and kind of wrote some psalm. He's got all this junk on there. He's got a bunch of condemnations on there too. But look at what he writes in Psalm 32 that Paul quotes in Romans 4. So here, here are the David's verses. Blessed are those whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord will never count against them. Huh. The one thing that David knew he knew where to go when he screwed up. And so David's messed up. He's confronted, right, by a prophet who takes his life in his hands by saying, David, you did all this stuff. And in Psalm 51, you can check this out, in Psalm 51, we have the record of David's confession. Most scholars believe that Psalm 32 was written years after Psalm 51. So in Psalm 51, Nathan confronts David, and immediately David comes in, oh, that's right, I did it, and I'm the man. Lord, please don't do these things. Don't hold my sin against me. Psalm 32 is a reflection years later, looking back on the forgiveness that God granted and that he's experienced for years and years now. And he writes, blessed are those whose transgressions are forgiven. And David would say, and I'm in that blessed category. I have lots of transgressions. They've been forgiven. 
Blessed are those whose sins are covered. I have a boatload of sins, but they've been covered. I have lots of sin, but God's not counting it against me. And as he reflects on what God did, he is still amazed by that. You know, Psalm 32, the first two verses that uh, Paul quotes in Romans 4, are well worth your reflection. In fact, David uses, you actually see it on the screen, David uses three different words for sin. Transgressions, right? Rebellion. Uh, What does he say? Your rebellions, your going astray is forgiven. Here's the picture. The burden of your transgression has been lifted from your shoulders. That's the first one. Secondly, he says sins. Sins are missing the mark. You take aim at something and you miss. Well, somebody's keeping track. You keep missing, missing, missing. You have a bunch of debits on the, on the scorecard, but your sins are covered. All of your misses are covered over by someone else hitting the bullseye. Huh. Your sin, that's the word for twisted. That's the word for broken and corrupt. But your twistedness, your brokenness, your corruption is not going to be counted against you. And David says, when I think about my transgressions and my sins and my sin, God's taking care of all that. I'm amazed as I reflect on that. That's pretty cool, right? Now notice, Paul knows exactly what he's doing. He's talking about that whole resume transfer that we've talked about for a couple of weeks now, but he uses Abraham and David because they communicate the opposite side of the resume transfer. With Abraham, God adds something to his resume. God sees Abraham's faith and God adds righteousness to his resume. Abraham lacks righteousness and commendation. God gives lots of righteousness. With David... God removes something from his resume, right? He removes transgressions and sins and sin. There are both pieces. God takes our resumes filled with condemnations. That's the David piece. And God removes them from our resume. Like Abraham, God then gives righteousness, perfect righteousness and commendation to us. Both transactions of the resume are mentioned in Romans 4 with the two different illustrations. And that's what we need, isn't it? I can tell by looking at you, you've got a bunch of junk on your resume, just like I do. You need somebody to remove and subtract all of our failures. And you need somebody to add to make up for all of your lacks. And Paul says, that's exactly what God does. Jesus is how it all happens. But the way, of wor- the way God works has never changed. Abraham wasn't made right with God because he was super righteous and never screwed up. David wasn't a great king and made right with God and access into into heaven because he had his act together. They were both failures. Their resumes were incomplete. Their resumes would have condemned them both. But God did the transaction. He removed stuff from the resume. He added stuff to their resume. But we know better than they do exactly how God does it. He does it by trading resumes with Jesus. Two illustrations to make the same point that he talked about in chapter 3 and now illustrates in Romans 4. Well, what are some instructions then? If they're the, uh, if they're the illustrations, what are some instructions? Uh, well, I'm going to mention three. Uh, here's the first one. 
Basic accounting is required. Sorry, sorry. Uh, so let me just ask, how many of you really love math? Anybody? I've got a few math lovers here. Good, good. Put your hands up. How many of you were accounting majors or work in an accounting position today? Raise your hand. All right, good. You know what they say about statistics and accountants lying? Oh, anyway. Uh, <laughs> um, how many of you hate math and despise numbers? Okay, yes. Yeah, good, okay. Well, here's the problem. If you're going to follow Jesus and continue what he started, basic accounting is required. If you don't understand some basic accounting, you cannot follow Jesus and you cannot continue what he started. I'm sorry. Uh, let me explain it like this. I had lunch this past Tuesday with a friend. Um, haven't sat down and chatted, you know, intensely for a while. So we caught up on families and work and kind of what's going on. And we had a great Chinese lunch, by the way. And just as we were parting, he said to me, oh, Charles, by the way, you know a whole bunch of people. I need to hire someone with basic accounting ability. Basic accounting skill required. They don't have to be a CPA. They don't have to be an accounting major. But basic accounting is required. I haven't thought of anybody yet for him. But I couldn't get that phrase out of my head. Basic account, because that's what Paul keeps saying in Romans 4. Basic accounting is required. Look, I'll show you. Here are the verses. If only we could get that. Oh, there we go. I was going to make a nasty comment about the PowerPoint people, but I won't. <laughs> so we have highlighted an accounting term. Um, the word is credit, credits, or count, same word, it's an accounting term. So let's read through it thinking basic accounting required. We're going back to look at Abraham and David. Here's what we read. What does scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. So you got to understand accounting to know how that works. Now to the one who works, wages are not credited as a gift, but as an obligation. However, to the one who does not work, but trusts God who justifies the ungodly, their faith is credited as righteousness. David says the same thing when he speaks of the blessedness of the one to whom God credits righteousness apart from the works, um, apart from works. Blessed are those whose transgressions are forgiven, sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord does not count, same word credit, against them. So what the heck's going on? Well, here's how it works. In accounting, there are credits and there are debits. Debits are what you owe and need to pay. Credits are what you are owed and people pay you. Now, if you don't understand about credits and debits, I would hate to see your checkbook. Uh, debits are what you pay. Credits are what gets paid to you. See how that works? There are debits and credits. And you have to know something about debits and credits. According to Paul, you can't understand Romans chapter 4. You can't understand Abraham, can't understand David. I should understand accounting. Basic accounting required like debits and credits. Well, here's how it works. Now that we have direct deposit, how many of you have direct deposit? Okay, good. Some of you are in the Stone Age, but uh, yeah, direct deposit works like this. You go to work, you perform reasonably well, you don't get caught sleeping and playing on your computer, you, and you get credited by they, you know, by they take your pay and credit your, through direct deposit your checking or savings account. That is a credit. You do your work. Through direct deposit, your account is credited. There's an addition. Some of you have kind of automatic payment from your account, right? 
that would be a debit coming from your payment. And what's really complicated, you have to keep track of all that stuff by going on and reminding yourself what you did and you get all lost. But there are debits and credits. See how it works? Now, here's where it gets complicated. There are two different ways for your account to be credited, though. We've been talking about the one. That makes perfect sense. You work, you perform, you labor by the sweat of your brow. You put in time and your employer, through direct deposit, credits your account. What does Paul say? That is an obligation. Your employer is not giving you a gift. He's obligated to pay you that because you worked for that. If he doesn't pay you, then you go get a lawyer. And that's a whole different story, right? Uh, see how that works? When you work for it, your employer is obligated to pay you. And through that obligation, your account is credited. But there's another way for your account to be credited. Somebody can just out of the goodness of their heart give you a gift and put money into your account. Provided they have the routing number and your account number, they can gift your account. I was tempted to put my routing number and account number up here, but knowing you, you would debit, not credit my account. <laughs> but if you had somebody's routing number and their account number, you could credit their account as a gift. The person doesn't do anything for it. They don't come mow your lawn. They don't paint your house. They don't do anything. You can credit their account as a gift. That's what Paul's talking about in Romans 4. So here's what he says. Don't think that Abraham worked and out of obligation, God had to credit his account because he was giving wages. No, no, no. Abraham didn't work. In fact, if God was going to credit his performance, it would be a debit, not a credit. But God gifted Abraham's account. Abraham had faith, and God gifted, credited his account, even though he did no work. That's why there are two parts to grace, and we sometimes forget the second part. Two parts. Here's the first part of grace. Unmerited favor. You get something you do not deserve. That's the first part. Here's the second part. Given by an unobligated giver. Grace is unmerited favor, but it's given by an unobligated giver. God is not obligated to credit our accounts at all. In fact, if it's only on obligation, our accounts would be debited, not credited. Basic accounting is required. David tells us through Psalm 32 that graciously and lovingly Jesus pays the debt, all the red ink in our account, Jesus pays them by removing the debt, paying the bill. And Abraham tells us that God fills our accounts full, not because we've earned it or deserve it, but as a gift. That, friends, is how forgiveness and salvation works. Basic accounting is required to understand it. Well, here's the second uh, bit of instruction. You've got to trust the trapeze. Trust the trapeze. What the heck does that mean? Um, you ever see the trapeze guys? Yeah, kind of swinging around up on the swings up there, and they, they kind of do it like this. Uh, and just in case you didn't know, there are two kinds of trapeze, two actors in the trapeze. There are flyers. 
They're the real little guys, right? They weigh like a buck ten, buck twenty. They're the ones that fly around, do the flips and all. Um, and everybody thinks that the flyers are the star of the show, right? I mean, they're flying. Oh, people ooh and on, and then they're clapping. Wait, when? And then there are catchers. The catchers are typically the bigger guys, the more burly guys. They're the guys that the flyers hope have really dry hands and that the rosin is working. And as the flyer is kind of doing all the thing, the catcher comes along and catches the guy. And even though the flyers are often the star of the show when it comes to the audience, I'm just guessing that to the flyers, the catchers are the star of the show. Don't you think? Now, in this whole trapeze drama, two, two actors, but three parts to the drama. Or you don't have a trapeze show. Here's how it works. First of all, the flyer must let go. If the flyer doesn't let go, there's no show, right? Two guys swinging, and then they come down. Well, wait, nobody pays to see that, right? I mean, the flyer has to let go in order for there to be a show. Well, the flyer first lets go, and I don't know about you, that's the hardest part for me. Um, you're flying, all of a sudden, you're way up in the air, maybe there's no net, and the thing's, okay, it's time to let go. I don't want to let go. But if the flyer doesn't let go, there's no trapeze, but that's not the end of the, of the drama. Secondly, after the flyer lets go, he does his flying around, twist and twirl, and he has to wait and wait and wait. I don't know about you. I hate, any of you love waiting? Do any of you wait recreationally? Like you just wait. You, you can't wait. No, everybody hates waiting, right? Well, the flyer, he lets go, and he's kind of front. Well, he's got to wait and wait and wait and for the catcher to kind of come back over. And if he doesn't come back over, it's going to be a puddle. And so there's wait. You let go, and you wait, and you wait, and you wait. But the third part of the drama is the flyer gets caught. Let go. Wait. Get caught. If you were to go back to Genesis... And read the Abraham story, you'd see those three things repeated over and over and over again. God says, hey, Abraham, let go. Let go of your network of contacts and your business partners and your extended family. Let go. And just wait and wait and wait. I'll show you where to go. And God catches him in the promised land, right? And God says to David, you read David's story, right, in 2 Samuel, and you'll see, let go, David. Trust me. Trust me. And sometimes they do and sometimes they don't. They wait and they wait. And God catches them every time, every time. That is the trapeze of faith. And that's not only what God called Abraham and David to do. That's what Paul does. You read through Paul's life and you'll see, let go, wait, get caught. That's the story of Jesus, let go, wait, get caught. And here's the hardest part. Those are the three acts of our faith journey over and over and over again. God says, just let go. Trust me and let go. And then you have to wait. And you wait. And you wait. And he catches you. Sometimes that sounds like a Tell the truth, even when it hurts, and you got to let go and trust, even though it may cost you a job or a frenzy, let go. Live a generous life and give to meet people's needs, even though you're not sure how to let go. And you got to wait, you wait, and God sometimes doesn't come through in the timing that we'd like him to exercise, but he always comes through kind of in the nick of time, right? And he catches us. 
But all those uh, little let go and wait and get caught scenarios, they're all just practice for the big one, right? Because one day, every one of us in this room, maybe it'll be this year before Christmas. Maybe it'll be next year, 10 years, or 50 years from now. But one day you're going to let go of that trapeze bar called life. Your hands are going to slip, and you're going to let go. And Jesus says, you just trust me. I haven't dropped one yet. You need that. But God gives us all of the little practice scenarios for that big scenario. And make no mistake, it's coming. Let go. Wait and get caught. And the point of Romans 4 is, are you trusting your record resume to catch you? Or are you trusting Jesus to catch you? I know about you. My resume has lots of holes in it. If I'm counting on that, I'm a whole world of trouble. But Jesus hasn't dropped one yet. He's worth trusting. One last bit of instruction, and you need this one too. Therefore, superiority and boasting are eliminated. Notice how Paul begins Romans 4. He says it like this. Now, if Abraham built his own resume, if Abraham performed and worked all the things, if Abraham somehow got rid of all the condemnations and added lots of commendation, he had something to boast about because his resume catches him and grants him access to God. If David worked really hard to clean up his resume, if David did enough penance, if David repented perfectly and he could get rid of all the junk on his resume, maybe they could feel superior and look down their noses at the rest of us that can't. But if it was a gift and not by works, they have nothing to boast about. And if you want to know if it's a gift or about works, read Romans 1 through 3. We've worked through there for a few weeks. There's nobody's resume good enough to open that door and nobody's resume strong enough to catch them. This is not a works deal. This is a gift deal. Unmerited favor given by an unobligated giver. And the next time you're tempted, as we all will be and are, to look down our self-righteous noses at someone else who may not have their life together as neatly as we do, may not have the resources we do, may not live the right way that we live, may not make the decisions that we make, may not have the track record that we have. Time out. All that we have and all that we've experienced has come by God's grace. And there's a whole bunch of junk that has been covered and removed from our resume and a whole bunch of commendation put in, put in there by Jesus. There is no place for superiority or for boasting. This is a gift deal. It's not a works deal. I love how Paul ends chapter 4. He does like this. Lest you think that these things are just written for your amusement about David and Abraham, these things were written for us that we can learn and live accordingly. Learn and live accordingly. Let's stand and pray. Father, we give you thanks for these illustrations.
not just dusty old strange characters from the foreign part of the book, but two people that remind us something's never changed. But Jesus changes everything. Lord, help us to get off the treadmill of trying to build our own resumes and hand our puny, condemnation-filled resume to Jesus. Take his perfect commendation resume from him. Experience justification from you. And then in turn, continue what he started. We pray in his name. Amen.